Good evening, everyone. We take this opportunity to welcome all of those who are joining us today, whether they are in the auditorium or online. Today we will start a series that's entitled The Passion and the Glory. And it's a series about our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus and the last week of his life and those roughly 40 days after his resurrection where he interacted with his apostles and other disciples. This lesson was developed by a brother in Christ. His name is uh, Mike Mazzalango. He worships at the uh, Edmond, Oklahoma Church of Christ. So today, we will follow Jesus as he eats his final meal with his apostles. We will follow Jesus as he experienced the first pangs of his long night of suffering in the lonely garden of Gethsemane. Many biblical scholars use the term passion. They're using the Latin term, if you will, pati, which means to endure a suffer. They use this term to describe in one word the psychological and physical suffering that Christ Jesus experienced beginning in the Garden of Gethsemane and ending with his death on the cross. So when we look at this study, we will find that this study will examine five key events that occurred during the Lord's passion, that is his death, which culminated in his glorious resurrection. Let us pray. Our blessed Heavenly Father, we love you so much. And Father, we're so very thankful that our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus was so willing to suffer and die for our sins. But Heavenly Father, we're thankful that he just didn't come, suffer, and die, and was resurrected. But while he was here, Father, he spent his time teaching, and even after his resurrection, he spent his time giving some very good instructions for us to follow. Not just those in the first century, Father, but instructions that would carry on through the remaining of time, how so ever long you allow us to continue in this life and this existence. Father, we ask that you be with us tonight, Father, that we have an open heart and open mind and willing ears, Father, to hear about our Savior Christ Jesus during those days and that time. Father, thank you for loving us and blessing us. These things we pray and thank you for in Christ Jesus' most holy name. Amen. Okay. Oops. Ah, there we go. So, when you look in your Bibles at Romans chapter 1 at verse 16, Romans chapter 1 at verse 16, the Bible tells us this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for, for or because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. To the Jew and also to the Greek. The gospel that, that Paul talks about here, it is a gospel that has the power to save men. This gospel is about Christ Jesus. This gospel is about the passion of his death. This gospel is about the glorious, the gloriousness of his resurrection. This gospel describes how God took the form of humanity 
in the person of Jesus Christ. It describes how God lived among men. And it also describes how men were so blinded by their own evil thoughts and hearts that they did four things. They plotted to destroy him. They lied in order to convict him. They tortured and humiliated him. They murdered and then they tried to forget him. And three days after his resurrection, or rather three days after these horrible events, what we find is Christ Jesus rose from the dead and he left that tomb empty. He then, over a period of a month, appeared to over 500 people at different places and different times. And then he just didn't leave. He just didn't leave. Because you see what happened in full view of his apostles. He was taken into heaven, leaving them with a promise. And that promise was this, that one day he will return. He would return unexpectedly in order to bring to heaven all of those who believed and served him. But you see, this coin that we're talking about right here has a flip side. Because the other side of that coin is this right here. Not only will he return to redeem those who believed and served him, but he will also return to punish all of those who did evil as well as those who knew of him but refused to believe in him. This gospel that Paul talks about, it talks about all of those things that I just told you And at the same time, all of the things that I've just told you, we can find them in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each writer, when we look there in that gospel, each writer provides, if you will, the same account from his own unique perspective. And these synoptic perspectives, if you will, climax, they're witness of Jesus's life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It's important we realize all four of those, because sometimes I think we, we just think about the, the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, but in order for there to be a death, there must be a life. In order for there to be a burial, there must be a death. In order for there to have been a resurrection, there must have been a burial. So in this lesson, I want us to focus on the climactic final moments of Jesus' life where the greatest drama, if you will, of human history was played out. So there are five things that we are going to see throughout this lesson. Starting tonight, what I want us to do is be there with Christ Jesus at his last supper. Next week, I want us to hear his last words. The week after that, I want us to see his last miracle. The week after that, I want us to know, hear, and understand his last command. And then that final week, I want us to receive his last gift. Today, in a time where religion is often used as a vehicle for politics or entertainment, I want to share with you the scenes that the apostles experience. At, at Acts chapter 17 at verse 6, Luke has this, Luke tells us this right here. These things that we're talking about, 
of the gospel of Christ Jesus turned the world upside down when it was told. So then I want to tell you about the passion of Christ Jesus. I want to tell you about the glory of Christ Jesus. So let us begin. Let us begin by joining him at his last supper. The final week of Jesus' life was the week of the Passover, culminating in the Passover meal. Now, to understand properly the significance, if you will, of the events surrounding Christ Jesus' last days, we need to have a proper understanding of the Jewish Passover. So let's go back in time. Some 2,000 years before Christ Jesus... God chose and promised to Abraham, who at the time lived in modern-day Iraq. He promised him that he would protect him. He promised him that he would give his descendants a special land in which to live. And he also promised him that the Savior would come through his people. Abraham's descendants were the Israelites and through a series of, of, of circumstances found themselves in Egyptian slavery. And they were there for several centuries. And then over time, God remembered his promises. So what did he do? He called upon Moses to lead his people out of Egyptian slavery into the land that he had promised them so many years before. But as we know from reading that scripture and that uh, that, that text and those accounts and, and studying that, we know that the Egyptian king... Well, he refused to allow Moses to bring the people out of Egypt. And we know that because of this, God sent plagues and catastrophes. uh, And and Egypt still refused to change their mind. The king stubbornly refused, despite all the calamities happening to his country. So the final plague sent by God was that the firstborn child and animal of every family would be killed by God's angel on a particular night. And God meant every family. So at the same time, in order to save the Israelites from this disaster, God instructed Moses to tell the people three things that they had to do. Number one, sacrifice a young lamb without blemish. Number two, Sprinkle this blood on the doorpost of their homes. Now, number three is kind of interesting because we are human beings. Can you imagine the death that was taking place that night? Can you imagine the sounds that was coming from homes that night? Now, we know what we do when we hear the shooting outside. We like to go over to the window and peek out and see what's going on. They had to be the same. But to see the other part of that was this. You stay inside. You stay inside. And eat the lamb. Don't worry about what's going on outside. I got it covered. So the Israelites did this. And when the angel of death came to seek out the firstborn of every household, of course, that angel passed by the house where the blood was on the doorposts. Well, the Egyptians at this time allowed the Israelites to leave. They woke up that morning and discovered a terrible thing that had happened among them. So God instructed Moses to tell the people 
that from that point forward, in the springtime, they were to keep the Passover meal as a remembrance of their liberation from bondage in Egypt. Now, this occurred between 1500 and 1400 B.C. Let's fast forward a bit. 1500 years later, by the time of Christ Jesus, the, the Passover meal had grown into a week-long festival that included the Passover meal followed by the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread. Originally, these were two separate feasts in that the Passover meal, uh, the Passover rather, sharing of the Passover meal on one day and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a separate seven-day event or feast that followed. So by the time of Christ Jesus, these two feasts had, had really merged into one and writers referred to them as Passover, period. During this time, Jews living in other countries uh, would come to Jerusalem in order, in order to sacrifice a lamb at the temple and share a Passover meal with friends and family. Each family or group would purchase a lamb and bring it to the temple to be sacrificed. Now this Passover meal consisted of four things. Roasted lamb, unleavened bread, bitter herbs such as uh, parsley, cucumbers, and wine. Now there is a uh, ceremonial significance of, of the way the wine was consumed. There were four cups that was drunk in ceremonial fashion accompanied by praise scripture reading, and prayer. Since it was Passover and no leaven was permitted, it seems that the wine was indeed new wine, fruited vine, or unfermented wine. Now this meal had a procedure. This meal had a procedure. And the procedure went like this. The family would gather and the father or leader would conduct the meal. Everyone would wash their hands, and they, they had a, a ritualistic way of washing their hands in terms of how they did that. And then they would have their feet washed if visiting someone's home. The first cup of wine was shared, and they gave a blessing, or they said grace. The father dipped the herbs in the meat and would pronounce a benediction, and then the father would eat, and then the others will eat after he did and so he will start the eating, if you will. Now, the second cup of wine is a little bit different here. It was prepared, but it wasn't consumed. Okay? It was prepared, but it wasn't consumed. So after it was prepared, a son would then ask the father to explain the feast. And this would provide an occasion to teach the family the significance of what they were doing, as well as tell the account of the Passover in Jewish history. Now, I'm going to share with you next what those elements represented at that time prior to Christ Jesus' uh, death, burial, and resurrection, okay? So, each of those elements that that we were looking at earlier, the lamb, the bread, the herbs, the wine, they had a significance, For instance, the lamb, its significance was sacrificial lamb and the blood covering as protection. Unleavened bread, 
purity, holiness of God's people, the rush to leave bondage, no time to allow the dough to rise, bitter herbs, their difficult experience in Egypt, and the wine, blessing and abundance when they settled in Canaan. After this, they sang Psalms 113 and 114, and then they drank the second cup of wine with prayer and with thanksgiving. Now, at this point, the father would wash his hands and take two portions of bread. One piece he would eat along with the meat and salad, and the others would do the same until the father would eat the last piece of the lamb, and this would signify the end of the meal. After this, there was a third and fourth cup of wine with songs and blessings, and they will also uh, read or sing Psalms 115 through 118. It was the traditional Passover meal that Christ Jesus ate, and it was this meal that the Lord sent Peter and John to prepare for himself and the other apostles, as we read in Luke 22, verses 7 through 13. This particular Passover meal was to be special. Why is that? Because it would be the last pass, uh, the last meal rather before our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus' death. So John and Peter, they prepared the room. The meal is set at a private upper room furnished with uh, a low table like you see on the slide here in a U-shape, which with uh, cushions surrounding it where the guests would recline. Now, in those days, the host in this particular event, John was the host, had the first place on the left so that he could see to the needs of the leader or honored guest who sat next to him. And then what would happen, they would seat everyone else uh, in order of their age or importance. And Judas sat to the left of Christ Jesus. We know this because Jesus offered him a sup, a bread to indicate who the traitor was. We read about this in John 13, uh, verses 21, 25, and 26. We know that John chose the first and host position next to Jesus because he leaned on Jesus' breast at some point during the meal. Again, John 13, verses 23 through 25. According to John 13, verses 4 through 6, Jesus either started or finished washing the apostles' feet with Peter. So either way, Peter was in the last place to the right, as you see on the slide. Now, the owner of the house had left a basin of water and a towel in order to allow the guests who had traveled on foot to wash their feet before they entered the house so that they can eat. They prepared the table by laying out the roasted lamb and other sacrificial meats, the bitter herbs, unleavened bread, as well as the wine with the cups for the blessing. So at this point, Jesus and his apostles have arrived for the Passover meal. Luke records that, and we're going to be going to Luke chapter 22, verse 24 in a minute. Uh, Luke records that there was a dispute among them concerning who was to be regarded as the greatest. So starting at verse 24, 
of chapter Luke 22, the Bible reads, And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. Verse 26, But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Perhaps, perhaps, John and Judas having taken the place as closest to Christ Jesus at the table caused some of the other apostles to become jealous. So as we read in the text, an argument began. And as Jesus says in the text, Jesus tells them that in the kingdom, the youngest is the greatest and the one who served was the most important. At John chapter 13, at verses 2 through 5, what we have described here is how our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus underscores the lesson by rising from his honored position at the head of the supper table and taking the basin and towel and proceeded to wash all of the apostles' feet. And as Tony alluded to, I think it was about three weeks ago, it, it, usually a slave was present at feast and this service was done by him as a, as a gesture, if you will, of hospitality by the host. So what we find happening here, though, is each apostle had entered the house, saw the basin. They knew what it was for, but did not wash their feet. Neither did they say anything or pass it along to any of the other apostles. And they were probably thinking that this task was for slaves, not for those who were interested in position. So after the foot washing, the Passover meal continued in the, the usual manner with Jesus serving as leader and distributing the food. Now, all four gospel writers give us their synoptic account of this. So all four gospel writers indicate that while they ate, Jesus revealed to them that there was a traitor among them. We see this in Matthew 26 and verse 21. And it stands to reason they were mortified. They were mortified and began to question themselves and Jesus as to whom it might be. Now, the synoptic account break down like this. In Mark chapter 14, verses 8, 18 through 31, tells us when Jesus said this, they all asked him, saying, surely not I. And Jesus answered, it is one of the twelve. In Luke's synoptic view at Luke 22 and verse 23, it says that they also discussed among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Matthew chapter 26 verse 2 in his synoptic view, uh, view rather, records that when Judas asked a question, surely it is not I, Rabbi, Jesus answered him, you have said it yourself. Now, down south, we got a way of saying things. We have the cute little ways we saying things. We're trying to get something over. So in the Hebrew way of speaking, when he said this, it was like saying, what you say is what you are. 
So, Judas, <laughs> what you just said is on you, bro. So it is left up to John, however, who is seated next to Jesus to describe what happened at this point. So at John chapter 13, John chapter 13, uh, verses um, 21 through 30. John chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. The Bible reads, When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at each other at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. Verse 23. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter, who was sitting across from John, gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. And he, John, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, is it I? I mean, rather, Lord, who is it? Verse 26, Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Verse 28. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposed, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for this feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. The apostles, and it's amazing how we do things. The apostles knew Judas was a thief. John 12 at verse 6 tells us that he used to steal money from the money box. And now they knew him to be a traitor. But what they didn't know, they, they were not aware of his plans as he left that night and went out. In a minute, we're going to Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. Matthew 26 and verse 26. So at this particular point of the meal with Christ Jesus and his apostles, there remains only a piece of unleavened bread to be eaten and the final cup of blessing for which he offered a prayer of thanksgiving in remembrance of the freedom God gave the Israelites from Egyptian, Egyptian bondage many years before. Earlier, I gave you the significance of those emblems prior to Christ Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. What's going to happen here is we're going to see how the focus changes from these, on these emblems from the past to the future. Matthew 26, verse 26, the Bible reads, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. Verse 28, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sin. 
But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. I'm going to stop right there. I'll read the rest of it in a minute. The focus changed from the past to the future. And this is how it went or how it goes. The unleavened bread will no longer represent the holiness and purity the people should have. But rather, it will now represent Christ Jesus' holy and pure body given for them as sacrifice for sin. The wine will no longer represent the blessing and abundance of the promised land. It will now represent... It would now represent his blood and his life freely given to purify all men from sin and guarantee the promise of an abundant eternal life. There will be no more lamb to kill and sacrifice. Why? Because he, Christ Jesus, is the lamb of God whose blood will cover and protect his people forever. There will no longer be bitter herbs as a memory of suffering. Why? Because the memory of his suffering will be eclipsed by the glory of his resurrection from the dead. This is the last Passover for Christ Jesus. It will also be the last Passover for his apostles. From now on, they will remember this night and share the bread and wine to remind them of their freedom from sin, to remind them of their freedom from death to life, to remind them of the glory through the body and blood of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus. Now, it was a custom. It was a custom to end the meal with songs of praise, and thanksgiving. And so Matthew and Mark writes that at Matthew 26, verse 30, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And they probably sang all the Psalms 113 through 118. Those those Psalms together are referred to as the Halil, meaning joyous praise in song. The lamb of the Passover has been sacrificed and eaten. But now, but now, as Jesus and the apostles left the solitude of the upper room, the true lamb of God, Christ Jesus, was being prepared for sacrifice. After the supper, the writers each describe how Jesus prepared the apostles for what was to come telling them plainly that very soon he would be tortured and he would be killed and they would all run away. Now Matthew and Mark write that the apostles insist that they were ready to die with Jesus and Peter says he would never deny him. Jesus responds by telling him that even before the cock crows he will deny him three times. Luke tells us that 
Jesus prayed for Peter at this point for two reasons. So that Satan would not overpower him and so that Peter would have the strength and courage, rather the strength to encourage others. Luke says that in a panic, the apostles took two swords with them. John, the apostle John, he gives the longest description of this scene where Jesus not only warns them, but Jesus also prays for the apostles. We, we can see the warning and the prayer when we read John 14, 1 through John 17 to verse 26. Jesus prayed for them. And when he prayed, he prayed that they might love one another. Why? Because love is a true sign of authentic discipleship. He prayed that he will prepare a place for them in heaven. He prayed that the Holy Spirit will give them strength and give them power. He prayed that they remember that he is the true vine, and so long as they remain faithful, they will be very fruitful. He prayed that God would sanctify and purify them in truth and keep them united with each other, with Christ Jesus and with God. Okay. After this, they make their way to the Garden of Olives. And they bring with them their swords. Now, the Mount of Olives was outside the city, and it was a place that was frequented by those who wished to be in solitude and prayer. And the eleven followed him uh, right up to the edge of the garden. And once they got there, Christ Jesus brings Peter, James, and John further into the garden with him. And he had a simple request for them. He asked them to pray not for him, but with him, because he was becoming sad and heavy with pain. Looking at the synoptic perspectives again, Matthew and Mark describe how Jesus wrestled in prayer, asking God to take away the cup of violence he faced. And three times he returns to the apostles and he finds that he comes to them rather for encouragement and prayer support. And three times he finds them asleep, heavy with fear and sorrow. Luke 22 verses 43 and 44 says that he was in such agony, his sweat became like great drops of blood. And an angel came to strengthen him. And Danny kind of hit on this Sunday. The angel did not come to give him more muscles. The angel strengthened him spiritually. In a moment, we'll be in Matthew 26, verse 42. So in the end, in the end, the battle to bring his human will under complete control of the Heavenly Father is won. As Jesus accepts the cross with the words that we see there. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. After returning to the eleven at the edge of the garden, they hear the sound of the crowd and the clanging swords, and they see the light of torches in the night. 
Judas. He has agreed to identify Christ Jesus to the crowd by greeting him with a kiss. John 18 at verse 3 says that he has Roman soldiers, guards from the temple of the priests and the Pharisees with him. Jesus receives the kiss and he tells them to leave the apostles alone. And as Tony alluded to several weeks ago, when they hear his voice, they fall to the ground. You know, Peter, I have to give it to him. He was very opportunistic because Peter seizes the opportunity and uses one of the swords to cut off the ear of one of the high priest servants. His name was Malchus. Luke tells us that Jesus healed this man's ear and stopped Peter from further violence. We see this at Luke chapter 22 at verse 51. John 18 at verse 11 says that Jesus accepted to be taken in order to fulfill the will of God when he said, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? And Mark 14 at verse 50, we find that Mark closes this chapter simply by saying, and they all left him and fled. Like a lamb for the Passover sacrifice, Jesus was bound and led away into his night of suffering. Brethren, Tonight we have started down the road of Christ Jesus' passion and glory, his death and his resurrection. Tonight we have joined him at his last supper. Thank you for joining us tonight. And I ask that you join us next week as we hear Christ Jesus' last words before he gave up his life on his cross for mankind and more specifically for us because of sin. In a moment, we will have a devotion. I asked Brother in Christ Randall to do that, and he's ready for it. Brother Pat is going to interpret because they don't trust me. So please join us if you're present, and you can stay, please stay. If you're online, please stay as well. That would be an invitation after the devotional. Uh, for those who are here, if you have any requests, you can make those known at this time. For those online, uh, we have the contact information on the board up there. By all means, give us a call. Thank you all for your attention tonight.